everyone. Uh, the reading today is from 2 Corinthians, um, chapter 7, verses 5 to 16, and this can be found on page 967 of the Church Bibles. That's 2 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 5 to 16. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting for Titus has proved true, and his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him, with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Thank you very much, Ella, and thank you, Kath, for leading us, and uh, band for leading our songs tonight. Uh, we're going to uh, come into this final part of 2 Corinthians in a moment, uh, final part before we take a break for Christmas. We'll return in January to chapter 8, and this passage tonight, it closes off what is the largest section of the letter, chapters 1 to 7, um, before Paul then addresses some specific things going on uh, in Corinth in chapters 8 to 13. Now, as usual, it's going to really help you to have the passage there in front of you, um, but uh, as we always do when we come to look at God's word together, we know that we need his help, so let's pray and ask him. Our Father, uh, the Psalms teach us that your word is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Lord, we thank you for your word to us tonight with its encouragements and with its challenges to us. 
And so we pray, Lord, that it may be precious and sweet to our hearts and it may bring about real change in us that we might hear and obey for your glory's sake. Amen. Over the last few months, we've spent time in 2 Corinthians, and what we've seen is that this is a letter about authentic Christian ministry. We've seen what Christian ministry should be all about, that it should be simple Bible-explaining, Jesus-proclaiming ministry. We've seen what this ministry achieves that it's really a glorious ministry that lifts the veil that's over people's hearts, that they might see the glory of Jesus Christ and be changed to become like him. So we've seen what it's about, and we've seen what it achieves. But we've also seen this, and this is what we'll focus on this evening. We've seen what authentic Christian ministry feels like. We've seen the experience of the person involved in it. And we mean by that both the person who's appointed to a formal ministry role like myself or Robin or Roger, but we also mean someone who seeks to support that kind of ministry by being part of that kind of church, and any of us who seek to speak to others about the Lord Jesus Christ. We mean by that people who are about this kind of ministry in ordinary life. We've seen what it will feel like for us and Paul has been very honest with us. He's told us that the Christian life as we serve God in this way will bring a mixture of emotions, a mixture of experiences. It does bring great joy and great purpose to our lives but it will often feel like weakness, like rejection, like suffering And like death, it will feel like death sometimes. And Paul here in this passage, as he closes off this section of the book, he speaks of all these emotions once more, of regrets, of grief, of pain, along with comfort and joy. So what it it is here, what it's, sorry, let me start that again. What is it here? Uh, that makes the experience of authentic ministry like this, such a roller coaster of emotions. Well, here in this part of the letter, what makes this experience like this is the necessity of challenging people towards repentance, of calling people to repent. That's what makes this ministry feel like this. Now, as soon as I say that it's necessary or essential, Uh, part of Christian ministry, well, we all know the problem with that, don't we? The thought that we might have to be someone who challenges someone else over their sin, well, it fills most of us with dread, doesn't it? It might hurt their feelings. They might reject us. They might speak badly about us to others. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul often in Corinth. Of course, we might feel, and we'd be right to feel like, well, we don't really have, we're not really in any position to do so. We're conscious of our own sin in our own lives. So who are we to say something to someone else? We don't want to be a hypocrite. And of course, it seems too that more broadly in our culture, there would be many people who would say that it's wrong to ever challenge anyone else on anything. 
Who are you to judge anyone else's decisions, we might think? We have this cultural pressure too. So with all that going on in our hearts and around us, what do most of us do when we see sin in others that we know needs to be addressed? We bottle it. We avoid. We avoid challenging anyone. In fact, we'll often do anything we can to avoid it. But Paul knows that lovingly challenging people over sin is a critical part of authentic Christian ministry. It's essential. When we see our brothers and sisters acting in sinful ways, well, we know first of all that it's offensive to God. That's our primary concern. But we can also see that it's destructive to others and to themselves. We know that for the good of all, it needs to be repented of and it needs to change but we hate being part of that process. So what do we do? How do we do it? And how do we respond when it is done to us? Now this passage, perhaps more than anywhere in the whole of the New Testament, is going to be so helpful for us in this area. We see the Apostle Paul model this for us with the Corinthians It's going to be helpful, I think, both for our normal engagement with one another as brothers and sisters. And I think it will be particularly helpful for those of us with particular ministry roles. They say the elders or small group leaders or youth group leaders and so on. Now, on the back of the service sheet, you'll see just how it's structured. And we begin in verses 5 to 8. Challenging people towards repentance leads to pain. Verse 5 gives us a scene. Paul is in Macedonia. Verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now that just reminds us that this letter is located. It's in a particular place and at a particular time and in a particular circumstance. In order to understand what's going on, we just need to spend a bit of time remembering uh, the situation between Paul and the Corinthians. And it was particularly mentioned all the way back in chapters 1 and 2. And here he's returning uh, to that subject. What had happened is that Paul had made a visit to uh, the church in Corinth, but it hadn't gone very well. In particular, an individual from the church had caused him pain, um, probably by some kind of public slander of him in, say, a church meeting or something like that. Now, that was either during his visit or just afterwards. And that would have hurt Paul, but what made it worse was that the church had just stayed silent about it. They should have stood with Paul, and they should have enacted some form of discipline on this man, but instead they'd done nothing about it. They'd kept quiet And that hurt Paul more than this man's sin did. All in all, it was a painful visit. And it's left the Corinthians with this fractured relationship with Paul. Now what happened next was that Paul intended to go to visit them uh, to try and resolve the problem. 
But then he decided that that would be too difficult for them to cope with. And so what he did was he wrote to them instead, and he sent his colleague Titus to them with what he calls his painful letter. And that's the letter referred to in verse 8. He spoke about it in chapter 1 and 2. He said there that it was written with tears, that it was written both to reassure them of his love for them, but also to strongly urge them to repent. He wanted them to know that he loved them still, but that they had to repent of this inaction in failing to discipline this man. They needed to do that so that his relationship with them could be restored. Now, Paul doesn't want this for himself, um, just to sort of make himself feel better. Now, he wants the restored relationship for their sake. He's conscious that he is an apostle. Uh, he planted the church there as that apostle. He's been appointed by Jesus to watch over them. And there are these so-called super apostles, these false teachers in and around them who are seeking to lead them away from the true gospel. So it's risky. To be cut off from Paul is a risky place for them to be in because they're in danger of being cut off from the true gospel at the same time. So the stakes are pretty high. Now Paul's been waiting in Macedonia. He's been waiting there for Titus to come uh, to him to return with news of how the Corinthians respond to this painful letter that he sent them. And in verse 5, we see that there's pressure on Paul in Macedonia from persecution, there's fighting without, and also the inward anxiety of their reaction. There's fear within. Will they repent? Will they be restored to Paul and the gospel? Or will they resent him and reject him and turn into the arms of these super apostles instead? It's an anxious wait. Paul says he's downcast or depressed by it. But then Titus arrives, and there's good news, verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Titus' return in the event is a joyful reunion. And it's joyful because Titus is Paul's friend. It's good to see him. But, but more so because of the news that he brings. Titus has great joy that the Corinthians have responded well to Paul's letter. That they mourn the sin that he has addressed. That they long to be restored to him. And now Paul takes the opportunity to show us and then what has happened to get them to that point. It begins in verse 8, and it reveals to us this authentic experience of Christian ministry. So verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So here it is. Challenging people towards repentance leads to pain, to grief. That's the word there in verse 8. And it's pain for the one being challenged, as they absorb the news that they're in the wrong. 
but it also leads to pain for the one doing the challenging. Paul says he regrets the pain that his challenge to them has caused because he doesn't want to cause pain. Pain itself isn't, isn't good. He doesn't enjoy causing that. Yet at the same time, he knows that it was necessary for them, necessary in order that they come to their senses. So though he regrets it temporarily, he doesn't regret it in the end. He regret, his regret only lasts a little while because of the result that it brings about their repentance. That's in verse 9. Now we'll think about the nature of repentance in a moment, but let's think first of all about the nature of calling people to repentance. There's a pain barrier to cross. Let me give an example from parenting. And my kids are here tonight. This is a fictional story, by the way. This hasn't just happened, just in case you were wondering. But something like it could have happened in the past. Child number one snatches the toy of child number two. And you know this because you can hear the argument ensue from the other room. You know that child number one has done this because when you go in, they're happily playing with said toy while child number two is sitting in the corner bawling his eyes out. That and the fact that this is now the third time that it's happened today. Now, as the parent, you've got two choices in that moment. You can ignore it, and you can hope that it sorts itself out. That's option number one. Or option number two, you can deal with the first child. And you know what you should do. You know that they need to be lovingly disciplined in some way. Let's say uh, 10 minutes on the naughty step is the method of choice here. But you don't want to. You know that it will be hard work for you to challenge them. You know that you won't like that experience. But also you don't want to because you know they won't like it. You know it will upset them, that your discipline of them will cause them pain. So what do you do? If you do nothing, well, they'll just keep on doing it, won't they? And that will be bad for child number two, who never gets to play with his toy. But it will also be bad in the long run for child number one. They'll grow up to be a selfish brat. They need to be sorry for what they've done, and they need to change. So you, as a loving parent, you make the decision to cross the pain barrier. Ten minutes time out, and you will apologise to your brother, you say. And then you absorb the grief that that brings you. Now you do it because you love them. And you're strong about it because you know that the message needs to strike home in their heart. But you don't enjoy it. It hurts them and it hurts you. There's a sense in which you regret it because of the pain that it causes temporarily but you do it because you love them and you do it because you know that it's necessary for them to repent and change. Now that's parenting. Together in a church, we don't treat each other like children. Now I was was hoping there'd be a naughty step somewhere in the building here, but I don't think we've got one put in. We don't treat each other like children, but the experience of calling others to repentance in any human relationship is really much the same as that. 
It's painful for you and for them, but it's necessary and it's done out of love. So first application, will you be willing to cross the pain barrier for your brothers and sisters? Perhaps you have someone in mind right now who you know that you need to lovingly challenge but fear has prevented you. Fear of pain, fear of grieving them and hurting you. So it does hurt to do this. Paul testifies to that. He knows that regret of causing pain, but he knows that it's necessary. He knows that it's what they need him to do. Now, so far, I've framed this as you being the one to do the challenging And that's the first way, I think, to apply uh, this teaching. But let's just flip it around for a moment. So here's a question. Is there anyone in your life who will lovingly challenge you in your sin? Is there anyone who will cross the pain barrier for you to call you to repentance? Because we all really need someone... (laughs) Who will love us that much? I remember when I was about uh, 17, and that, uh, in some ways I was a pretty obnoxious uh, young man. Thought, thought I knew everything, as um, young men uh, that age tend to do. And I, really, I was speaking arrogantly and critically um, to others about one person in particular. And I distinctly remember one occasion when my youth leader, a guy called Terry, was his name. We were sitting on a bus and he spoke to me about the sin that he was seeing in me. And he told me that I was sinning against God, first of all, and that if I carried on doing what I was doing, that I would damage my relationships and ultimately myself. And I knew he was right and he could say it to me because he'd build up credit with me. I knew him, and he knew me, and I knew, therefore, that it was a loving rebuke. But it was painful for him to deliver. I know he would have struggled to start that conversation, and it was painful for me to receive, but it was necessary. Here was someone who loved me enough to cross the pain barrier for me and call me to repent, and I'm so thankful for him. Do you have someone in your life who can do that for you? Because you and I are sinners, but we're also so often blind to our sin, aren't we? We can't see it. And so we really need someone who will do that for us. I wonder perhaps um, if you're not sure there is anyone, uh, you might be able to ask someone tonight, would you just keep a check on me? Maybe your small group leader or uh, anyone uh, here. Now with all that uh, there in that first point, the question of course becomes, how will we respond when we're challenged? So let's now think about this response uh, to this kind of loving challenge. So challenging people uh, towards repentance leads to pain, but point two, verses nine to 12, but pain leads to repentance and then salvation. 
So what's the point in all this? What's the point in challenging someone? What's the goal that you're aiming for? Well, you're not aiming to bring pain or grief, or if you are, you're, you're doing it wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. No, you're aiming for repentance. And this is actually what Paul's letter to the Corinthians achieves. They do repent. He writes in verse 11 and 12 that the Corinthians have proved themselves innocent in the matter. You can remember back to chapter 2, we learned there that they had taken steps to deal with the man who had opposed Paul. And in fact, if anything, they were too zealous about it. And Paul had to tell them to make sure that the man could now be forgiven and restored. They truly repented, at least the majority of them. And they were eager to restore their relationship with Paul, which is exactly what he'd hoped could happen. Paul wrote so that their relationship could be restored. And wonderfully, it was on the road to recovery. It's in verse 12. But how do they get there? Have you seen the nature of godly challenge? But what's the nature of repentance? What Paul says in verse 9 and 10 shows us how repentance works. And it's the clearest diagnosis of repentance in all of Paul's writings. Let me read it and we'll look at it together. So verse 9. As it is, I rejoice... Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Uh, as you'd have picked up, Paul here's not speaking about grief over the loss of a loved one or anything like that. He's talking about grief over sin. The word translated grief is the word elsewhere translated as pain. It's pain over sin or sorrow over sin. That's what's in view here. And Paul says that there are two kinds of that sort of grief. There are two ways to be sorry, if you like. There's one good and one bad. There's godly grief and worldly grief. Now just notice, first of all, that the difference between the two is eternally important. Look at what each leads to. Godly grief produces repentance and leads to salvation. A wonderful result. But look at what worldly grief leads to. It produces death. So the stakes are eternally high. We need to know what the difference is between the two. And that's hard to tell, at least initially, because they'll look much the same. They may well be uh, tearful remorse in both cases. In both cases, they may well be uh, an admission that what the person has done uh, was wrong even. They look very similar. What's the difference? The result of that grief, which is either repentance that leads to salvation or lack of repentance, which leads to death. Now, I've seen this in action uh, several, several times, um, but one example I particularly remember from several years ago, uh, two incidents happened within the space of a couple of weeks. Uh, two young men... Uh, both of whom professed to be Christians, who in many ways were 
Um, great encouragements. But at around about the same time, uh, it came out uh, for each of them independently uh, that they'd been caught up in some sexual sin uh, in one way or another. And that was, that was really, really sad. It's not particularly surprising, so common in our culture for that to be a struggle. Uh, two of many conversations um, like this. Anyway, it felt to me as their pastor to challenge them on it. And I'm not sure that I did the best job. I wouldn't claim to have mastered uh, how to do this. I'm sure I made mistakes in the way that I did it. But I did at least cross the pain barrier to have a conversation with them both. And I'll use this as an example because my approach was pretty much the same in both cases. Remember distinctly, we we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which speaks about sexual immorality. We spoke about what they were doing. We spoke about how that was wrong, about how God had a better way for them to live. And both of them were very remorseful in those conversations. Remember the tearfulness? Both of them knew that what they'd done was wrong. They knew it was against God's will for their lives. And it looked to me that they were both genuinely sorry. But over the next few weeks, it became clear that the results were radically different. The first guy, sadly, he came to resent the conversation. He broke off contact both with me and the church and is spiritually nowhere. And it's still a source of deep sadness to me and to many others who love him. Now, it may be that God will still turn him around, and that is my prayer. I'm praying that will happen but it seems to be the kind of thing that Paul describes here, a kind of worldly grief. There was a sorrow over sin, but it was a kind of sorrow for oneself. It was a sort of misery about being in this situation. And it was a sorrow that ended in bitterness and hardness of heart towards God. And if it never changes then it will lead to death. And it's desperately sad. But the other young man, and actually, to my mind, it was the one for for whom the sin was a bigger problem uh, in many ways. Well, they would later come and ask for help to break free from it. He was able to meet regularly with someone to look at God's word, And by God's grace, he fought sin, and he's doing well. He's walking with the Lord. Now, it's still a struggle for him, but he is fighting it. He had what Paul calls godly grief, a deep sorrow over sin, but that deep sorrow led him to repentance, and in the end, we trust salvation. And it left no regret. I don't regret that conversation And neither does he. And I wonder perhaps tonight we need to consider our response to sin being called out in us. How will we respond when that's done? How are we responding if that's been done to us recently? Is my sorrow over sin merely sorrow for myself? Am I miserable because I've been found out Am I sorry, but really blaming others for it? That can be how worldly grief manifests itself. It can turn into a kind of uh, resentment 
of others? Or perhaps has it led to a kind of miserable defeatism where I claim that I can't possibly change because I'm too far gone? So we can so easily fall into that trap and it's worldly grief, not godly grief. Godly grief is deep sorrow over sin. Sorrow to God for the offence it's caused to him and sorrow to the, towards those whom we've sinned against. And godly grief turns into an eagerness for repentance. The Corinthians responded to this like this to Paul. Their, their grief produced what he calls an earnestness, an eagerness to sort it out, an eagerness to repent from what they've been doing, and that's what they did. And that kind of real repentance, that in turn leads to comfort and rejoicing. That's our final uh, very short point this evening. Verse 13 to 16, repentance leads to comfort and rejoicing. Listen to Paul and Titus' response to the news of their repentance. Verse 13, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. If you ask me what the greatest joy in Christian ministry is, I would say that I think it's when someone places their trust in Jesus Christ for the first time. When someone comes to salvation through faith in the death of Jesus for their sins, when they repent for the first time and receive salvation, I think that's the greatest joy. But here's a very close second the real repentance of the Christian. There is such joy over repentance and restoration. See what's going on? What began with pain ends in joy. Pain for both the one challenging and the one being challenged, and in the end, joy for the one repenting, and for the one who challenged them. This is what crossing the pain barrier can result in. This is why it's worth doing it. Of course, sometimes that doesn't happen. That's really sad when that's the case. But if you never cross the pain barrier, you'll never, cross, never encounter this kind of joy. We're out of time. Let me give you just four questions to leave us with and perhaps to discuss over coffee in a moment. Four questions. Number one, do you have friends who will lovingly challenge you? Do you have friends who will lovingly challenge you? Number two, how will you respond when you're challenged over sin? Will it be with worldly grief or godly grief that leads to repentance? Number three, will we be willing 
to go through the pain barrier to lovingly challenge others. And finally, number four, will we rejoice in the repentance of others? Let's pray. As we pray, just some words from chapter 7, verse 1, which you heard um, a couple of weeks ago. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Our Father, this is our desire. We want to be cleansed from every defilement of body and spirit. We want to be holy And we know, Lord God, that we need each other for that. And so we pray, Lord, you'd help us to lovingly challenge one another, to do so with grace, to do so with humility, not thinking that we're better than anyone else. Lord God, we pray too that as we are challenged by others, that we would respond with godly grief that leads us to real repentance. Our Father, we know that uh, we don't like this. This is a difficult thing for us to do. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help that you might change us as your people to make us holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.